Today we turn in the Word of God to Matthew 5, verse 4, and then if you'll also turn to Romans 8, 31 to 39. We began the Sermon on the Mount last week, which begins, as you know, with the Beatitudes. And we're planning to go through them probably about one a week. We'll see how it goes. You can let me know if it's too slow. It probably can't be too fast. Although Thomas Watson, I mentioned him, he spends countless, hundreds of pages going through them. So in a sense, you could go through them more than one a week. Uh, I commend that work to you. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I mentioned him last week. Colin Smith, a third name. Smith kind of takes what they have done and shortens it. Many of you have read his book. Um, let's turn to the Word of God, Matthew 5, verse 4, and then Romans 8, 31 to 39. Hear now God's Word. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is he who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God remains forever. Chuck Colson was an American attorney. You've probably heard of him through Watergate, through Breakpoint. He died at age 80 in 2012. He became a Christian in 1973. And Kent Hughes writes of something Colson observed a number of years back. It was on a 60 Minutes episode. Mike Wallace was interviewing an Auschwitz survivor named Yehiel Denur, a witness at the Nuremberg war crime trials. During the interview, a clip from Adolf Eichmann's 1961 trial was viewed that showed Denur entering the courtroom and coming face-to-face with Eichmann for the first time since being sent to Auschwitz almost 20 years earlier. Denur was stopped cold. He began to sob uncontrollably, and then he fainted. Was he overcome by hatred, Colson asked? Fear? Horrid memories? No, it was none of these. 
It was, as Denure said to Mike Wallace, all at once he realized Eichmann was not the godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. This Eichmann was an ordinary man. I was afraid about myself, said Denure. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. Wallace responded, Eichmann is in all of us. A horrifying statement, but capturing the truth of what the scriptures teach. As a result of the fall, sin is in each of us. Not just the susceptibility to sin, but sin itself, our sinful condition. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. And as McShane said, the seed of every sin is in our hearts. And all the more dangerously if we don't see it. That's what this beatitude is about today. Blessed are those who mourn, so that they then will be comforted. We see, first of all, spiritual mourning. This is about as counterintuitive, isn't it, as you can get. Dale Van Dyke brings this out in a story. In the world today, you would say the exact opposite of this. Think about social media. Here's the story. A woman comes to a conclusion on social media a while back that she had this view of herself that was completely false. She said she was at a party. She had these balloons. She writes this post so overwhelmingly happy. Explanation point, explanation point, emoji, happy face, emoji, happy face. And then she says, looking back, that was one of the most depressing moments of my life. I was lying. I'm not happy. So why would she say that? This beatitude is saying happy are the sad. It's so counterintuitive. She is recognizing the American motto, blessed are the happy, the emotionally fulfilled, the fit, the fun, the people who find their soulmate and love their work and are living their dream. Now all those things are things we thank God for, but that's not what Jesus is getting at. He's saying there are blessings when you're crying alone in the dark. There are blessings in the pit of darkness. In Psalm 88, the darkest psalm in the Bible. When you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. The world says happy are those who don't mourn. Happy are those who have things go their own way. Happy are those who forget their troubles. Happy hour in our culture. They've got a good deal on chicken wings at that time. Sometimes we get them half off. I love that. But happy hour, what are they saying? They're saying, here's the time when you can forget your sorrows and for some, drink them away. And then you'll be happy. Or you can entertain yourself to death. Just entertainment and you don't have to deal with all the grief of your life. Or just pretend, grin and bear it. Escape. Drugs, other addictions. The world doesn't want you to mourn. The world wants you to be distracted. For some people, be so busy that you can't think about the pain. Many churches don't mourn either. A lack of confession of sin and repentance, or just kind of congratulating ourselves, that can happen in churches. So is Jesus telling us to be stoic? 
right? Remember the ditches to avoid. Is he saying, blessed are the stoic who have no emotions? No. Jesus is not condemning laughter and joy. In the right context, at the right time, it's good and godly to laugh and to give thanks to God in humor. Jesus is not blessing all sorrow, worldly sorrow, the sorrow I got caught, my reputation is ruined. That's King Saul. Judas had that kind of sorrow, regret, not repentance. Many criminals, they live a life and then all of a sudden they're apprehended and they have tears. That's not this kind of mourning. King Naboth, I'm sorry, King Ahab didn't have this kind of mourning. Remember him? He's a king in the Old Testament. He's got a palace. He's got everything you'd want, but he sees this little vineyard that Naboth has over there. He said, I want it. My heart is set on it. Naboth wouldn't sell it to him. Ahab went home. He pouted. He wouldn't eat his breakfast. He wouldn't eat his honeycomb kits. He just had a pity party. Sorrow based on selfishness, is not this at all. Or think of Amnon. He mourned because his lust wasn't fulfilled by Tamar. So what is proper sorrow? There's a certain kind of mourning that is proper, and yet it's not exactly what Jesus is talking about, but I do want to talk about it. In a fallen world, a world subject to decay, disorder, suffering, Death, toil, weariness, sickness, pain. It is right to be sorrowful. Jesus says we are sorrowful yet rejoicing. It is proper to lament a prayer in pain that leads to trust in God. Lament the loss of a job, the ongoing sickness of a child, the health difficulties you're facing, the death of a loved one, that's right to cry about. It would be wrong not to cry. My tears have been my food day and night, the psalmist says. Where is my God? Paul says, Timothy, I'm mindful of your tears. The man with the demoniac, uh, the the demon-possessed son comes to Jesus. He's weeping. Help me, Jesus. I know you can help. I have nowhere to turn. God is concerned with your struggle. You are not alone when you suffer. Jesus, in fact, is the man of sorrows. Steve Lawson brings this out. Do you know that the Bible never says Jesus laughed? It doesn't mean he didn't laugh. That would be an argument from silence. We don't want to say that. But the Bible never says he laughed, it says he was hungry. He was thirsty. It says that he wept over the death of his friend Lazarus because he loved Lazarus and he loved Lazarus' family and he saw what sin and death was doing to people he loved. Genuine compassion. Isaiah 53, and we sang some of these words, tells us Jesus was a man of sorrows. Reminding us these Beatitudes first And foremost, talk to us about Jesus himself. Blessed are those who mourn. Christ mourned, not for his sin, but for our sin that he was taking and that was imputed to him on the cross. 
These beatitudes are spiritual blessings on you, loved ones. They're not saying work yourself up enough to hate yourself and then maybe God will love you. That is the anti-gospel message. They're not saying you have to gin up or work up repentance on your own. They're saying look to Christ. He is blessing this person. Who is this one he's blessing? One who is spiritually mourning over their sin. That's the focus of the beatitude. The context reminds us, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are not financially poor, it's not saying that, but those who are spiritually bankrupt, who have no righteousness of our own to cling to. Following that, blessed are those who mourn. Because you can recognize, I'm a sinner, and not mourn over it. You can realize, I have no hope in myself, and be indifferent to it. That's why Colin Smith says they, the Beatitudes kind of build on each other from one ring to the next. Only God the Spirit can do this in our hearts. Bringing about a mourning over our sin. A strong mourning. This is a word talking of a deep, heartfelt grief. Grief over actual sins we commit against the Lord and one another. The word is also used to talk of a parent grieving at the grave of a child. Deep, visible, upheaving grief. It's a perpetual grief, the Bible's saying here. It's always being in mourning. Habitual repentance. Meaning we never get beyond this. We don't say, okay, today we've got this. We'll go back to it maybe in five years. This is ongoing. James 4, wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your, your, your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. We are reminded sin is cosmic rebellion against God. It is a violation of the beauty of a holy God. It is, as Luther said, us being curved in on ourselves. Autonomy, pride, spiritual adultery, unbelief. Sin is not trivial. It is an insurrection against heaven's throne. We saw that last week. We grieve over our sin when we remember that this is what Jesus died for. As Colin Smith said, spiritual mourning names sins. It's easy just to kind of generalize for all of us, isn't it? I, I am sorry if I did something to hurt you or if I messed up or goofed up. Sin, in this way, sins are named. I was envious. I was proud to our kids. Daddy was angry and selfish. To our wives, I was a jerk. Forgive me. Naming these sins, I insisted on my own way. I'm indifferent. My unbelief, my apathy, my cold lack of love. Spiritual mourning, Smith says, is the key in the fight against habitual sin that all of us are struggling with in different ways, perhaps. 
It is the key to breaking the compulsive power of sin by the Spirit. That's why it's a blessing Jesus gives to us. See, blessed are. So we think about sins we've committed, maybe that we've committed over and over again this week. We're tempted, we sinned, we did it again. We said, I hate the sin, and yet we go back to it. These habitual sins in our lives make all of us harder to live with, harder to love, harder to work with, harder to be in a relationship with. They dampen our joy in worship, or they keep us from worship. Same with prayer. They keep us from prayer. As one person said, either prayer will help by the Spirit to keep you from sinning, or sinning will keep you from prayer. These sins can make us sick. David was physically ill, Psalm 32. His bones were aching. And above all, these sins are an offense against a holy God. David said in Psalm 51, Yeah, I sinned against Bathsheba, Uriah, the whole nation, but against you, you only, God, have I sinned. He's recognizing his sin against the holy God. Ephesians says, as Christians, our sin grieves the Holy Spirit. That's mysterious. We don't understand that fully. It's not that the Holy Spirit has some sort of sinful jealousy here. We sin, and the Spirit experiences grief in a manner appropriate to his deity, Ephesians 4.30. The context there is the way we talk. Our tongue. How quickly that tongue can grieve the Spirit and sin against those we love. So how do we hate these sins without hating ourselves? By spiritual mourning. We want to change. We want to be more like Christ. We want these patterns to break. And as Redpath says, spiritual mourning leads to forsaking sin. Have you prayed this before, loved ones? Here's what he says. God has not promised to forgive one sin that we are not willing to forsake. How could I ask God to forgive me if I have no intention of forsaking the sin that I confess? Meaning, if it's in my heart to plan to do it again and to go right back to it and to expect doing it, how can I expect God to forgive me for that? Redpath is bringing up a good point. Spiritual mourning is what helps us not stay in this cycle of sinning, pretending to say I'm sorry, and going back to it. But to seek the Lord, to forsake our sin, what does this involve? Godly repentance. It's another way of putting 2 Corinthians 7. I rejoice, not that you were grieved. See that? But what? That you were grieved into repenting. The sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret that leads to salvation. Not hating yourself, not being hard on yourself, not saying I'm so stupid, how could I have done it? But a godly sorrow, recognizing our sin against the holy God. Luke 6 has the same beatitude, but it puts it in a very interesting way. It said, blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Woe to those who laugh now, for they will weep. 
Luke is bringing out an eternal aspect to this, that all of us will mourn, either mourning over our sin now and coming to Christ by grace through faith and repentance, or hell is eternal mourning. It is wailing and weeping and gnashing of teeth, not a godly sorrow, not this kind of mourning. Eternal suffering. This is a mourning over our sins personally. It's a mourning over the sins of the church, Van Dyke says. So as we look at the church, God, have mercy upon us. Our denomination, God, have mercy upon us. We are not perfect. Forgive us for our blind spots. Forgive us for our obstinate sins. God, have mercy upon us at Emmaus Road where we have sinned, where we have lacked in love, where we have sinned in our words, in our distancing, in our coldness, where we have sinned as pastors, elders, and deacons, knowingly and unknowingly. God, forgive us. No pretending, no posturing, no, we've got it. God, have mercy upon us as a church. God, have mercy on those who have left your church meaning who have departed from Christ, who don't name the name of Christ. We love them. They were once here, and now they're not going anywhere. They're not naming Christ. God, bring them to repentance. The sorrow over sin is always the forerunner to genuine spiritual revival and reformation in the church. We see that in the days of the Reformation. We see that in the days of Nehemiah when Ezra read the law law of God for six hours. Josiah finds the law of God in Kings. There's another aspect of this mourning. It's mourning over the sins of the world we live in. Our society doesn't mourn sin. It hates those and despises those who do mourn sin. Our culture is the culture of Isaiah 5. It's the culture of the fall since Genesis 3, calling evil good and good evil. Paul wept for the unbelieving world of his day. Yes, we can easily feel righteous indignation as we think about what's happening in our day, but we should also weep. Do we weep as Paul did? Philippians 3. For many of whom I've often told you and tell you even now, how? With tears. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. They prostitute their soul for physical pleasures. They glory in their shame. And Paul weeps over it. And so should we weep over what we see in the world around us. Pain in our hearts. Jesus, come back quickly. Sinfulness in the nation we live in. This, loved one's spiritual mourning is a blessing, and yet it's so rare. Why? Thomas Watson says there's a lot of reasons. The hardness of heart is the, the chief one. Why do we not mourn? Because we're hardened heart. Why are we hardened heart? Because we love sin. Because, on the other hand, we just despair. And despair has no hope in Jesus. Despair says God is not there. God is not gracious. Why are we hard in heart? Because we're arrogant, Watson says. Because we're presumptuous. I'm good enough. I'm fine. 
because we procrastinate. Watson brings this up. You may seek the blessing with tears, he says, as Esau tried to do, right? But it was too late. The devil's favorite word, loved ones, is tomorrow. I'll go and visit that friend tomorrow. I'll help out a neighbor in need tomorrow. I'll grieve over my sin tomorrow. I'll trust in Christ tomorrow. There was a poem written about this. No one should be kinder or braver than he tomorrow. A friend who was troubled and weary he knew who'd be glad of a lift and who needed it too. On him he would call and see what he could do tomorrow. Each morning he stacked up the letters he'd write tomorrow and thought of the folks he would fill with delight tomorrow. It was too bad. Indeed, he was busy today and hadn't a minute to stop on his way. More time he would give to others, he'd say, tomorrow. The world would have known him had he ever seen tomorrow. But the fact is he died and faded from view and all that he left here when living was through was a mountain of things he intended to do tomorrow. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Another thing that contributes to a hard heart is shallowness. People just want to party. Just make it one big party. Life is just fun, and that's all. And they don't think about things of eternity. God, we need your help, God. We need your spirit to help us repent in this way, all of us. This person is a person of Titus II, like grace. Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, reverent, not slanderers. A person who is sober-minded and with a joy unspeakable. And when you mourn this way, Ferguson says, you might realize, I'm not saved. A person might think, as Ferguson says, my whole life has been revolving around myself. I have been the center of my universe. It's all about my ambition. And now, by God's grace, I realize Christ is the center of my life, that my righteousness is filthy rags. And then, by God's grace, I say, what must I do to be saved? Is there any way for a sinner like me to be saved? And out of these bowels of mourning, you find the comfort of the gospel. Secondly, the Christian in spiritual mourning is sorrowful, yet rejoicing. Sorrowful because of the offense and effect of our sin rejoicing because of who we are and what we have in Christ, they will be what? Comforted. They and they only. Those who don't mourn for their sin will not be comforted. God wants you to be led through mourning to comfort. The law of God leads us to godly sorrow by the Spirit. Why is that? Because, as Van Dyke says, you can only really see Jesus through tears of contrition. Simon Peter was with him for three years, but didn't really see him. His pride was in the way. 
And then he sinned grievously. He betrayed Christ three times. He wept bitterly. And for the first time, he really saw Jesus, the Savior of sinners, the Savior of his sin. What is comfort? It's not the comfort in, not comfort food, not having your socks on and the fire on and the temperature perfect and the Olympics on. We like those things. Those are fine things we thank God for, but that's not this comfort, is it? It's a word that means to call someone alongside to help. 2 Corinthians 1, God is my comfort. God is my consolation. God is my strength. God is the one who strengthens me. As my morning rises to him by his spirit, his forgiveness flows to us. He is the God of all comfort. The Heidelberg Catechism begins this way. What is your only comfort in life and in death? that I am not my own, but I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. When the Heidelberg says comfort, it means certainty, confidence, assurance that all the spiritual blessings we have in Christ are ours. We experience them now by faith, and in a foretaste, we will experience them fully in the age to come. It's a personal question. What is your only comfort? What is my only comfort? Jesus says there's a day when your mourning will be turned to joy. Even if you weep in your circumstances, who you are in Christ defines who you are now and forevermore. So for every one time you look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Remember that quote? That's from the context of spiritual mourning. You look at your heart, and I look at mine, and we see a few yards in, and there are unfathomable depths of sin there that God, by his grace, has restrained us from. But don't keep looking there. Don't despair, Christian. Look to Jesus. Look at the cross. This is the crucial step in breaking the pattern of habitual sin. Seeing what Jesus did for you on the cross to accomplish your salvation. It is finished. Seeing that his blood was shed, not one drop of it was wasted. Knowing the love of Jesus for you. That will strengthen you and I in our battle against sin. He who did not spare his own son, Romans 8, The cross shows the evil of sin, the wrath and judgment of God against it, and God's love and willingness to forgive you. This cross of Jesus is the hope for a sin-tormented world. Jesus was made sin for us. And Isaiah 40 looked forward to this. Do you remember that passage? Comfort, comfort you, my people. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare has ended. Her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand, what? Double for all her sins. That's not double judgment. That's double grace. 
where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Your sins are forgiven because of Christ. Your debt is paid. The guilt is gone. The shame is removed. The penalty is gone. The power is broken. All because of what Christ did. So your conscience is free today, Christian, if you're in Christ by faith. Free from fear, terror, and dread. Your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. You have unspeakable assurance that God gave you the greatest gift, which is his own son. So who will condemn you, Paul says, Romans 8. Satan wants to condemn you. But you're in Christ if you are trusting him. Satan has nothing on Christ. He could plaster this wall with our sins, but your righteousness is found because it's found in Christ. His righteousness is yours. You struggle, though, with assurance. You say, well, how do I know the love of God? One answer would be to turn to Romans 8. Paul wants you to see in God's own word God's love for you. He wants you to see, written down right here, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. He wants you to remember what Martin Luther said, When the devil throws your sins up to you and says, you deserve death and hell, we ought to say, I admit that. I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does that mean I'll be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I will be also. Romans gives you an avalanche of comfort. Four reasons why you will never be condemned. Christ Jesus died for you. Not only did he mourn, but he conquered in his death. He conquered sin, Satan death, and hell. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, who was raised. The physical bodily resurrection of Jesus dominates our life. It dominates the history of the world. It destroys the fear of death in every believer. And it destroys every other fear, except the fear of God. The resurrection of Jesus is God's determination to make Christ Lord of all. The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead will never, through the darkest days, fail. Christ Jesus died. He was raised. He ascended in dominion, in power, in glory, in reign. And he intercedes for you. In your weakness, he is praying for you before the throne of his Father. So your prayers come through the power of the Spirit up to the throne of God by the angels, the Bible says, to Jesus, who brings them to his Father, who says, here they are, Father. Here are the people I died for. Here are the people you love from before the foundation of the world. He intercedes for you. He binds up the brokenhearted. He's with you in the dark valley. That means, Romans 8, trouble and tribulation can't separate you from the love of Jesus. External pressures 
In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus says. But take heart. Christ has overcome the world. Romans 8, hardship and distress can't take you away from God's love for you in Christ. Internal pressures, anxieties, fears, distresses, worries. You're more than a conqueror. You are, Paul says, a hyper-conqueror through Christ who loved you. Angels and demons, they can't take you away from God's love for you in Christ. Things present, things to come, height, depth, death, life. Paul says there's no loophole here. No creature, no one can take you away from the love of God in Christ. So if you die tomorrow and you're in Christ, you will be with the Lord. What a comfort that is. Donald Gray Barnhouse shared this story. His wife died, leaving him with a 10-year-old daughter. They were grieving. One day they were crossing the street. A big truck came really close to hitting the 10-year-old girl. Kids, how scary is that? A big truck rolling down. He picked her up. He carried her. He says, do you know how sad we are about mommy? The girl said, yes, we're sad. He said, did the truck hit you? No, she said. He said, just the shadow of the truck hit you. Death didn't hit mom, he said. Only the shadow of death hit mom. She's alive today. Death hit Jesus. The wrath of God. Our sins are poured out on Christ. Because death hit Jesus in that fury, all that can hit us in Christ is the shadow of death. Which for the Christian is our entrance into glory. Christian, your last day will be your best day. The day of your death will be the day that you go to Jesus. To live is Christ. To die is gain. We don't need to fear death itself. And until the Lord calls us home, the Holy Spirit is comforting you. The Holy Spirit, the one whose name we get the word comfort from, paraclete, the one who comes alongside. Blessed are those who mourn, meaning God's comfort comes to you in the form of his divine companionship. He binds up your sorrows. He consoles you. The Spirit applies all the work of Christ to you. God's love is poured out to you in your heart. How? By the Holy Spirit. The seal of the Spirit is on your hearts. You have eternal life, forgiveness, grace, mercy, joy, hope, security, comfort, peace, love, righteousness, assurance. All of it is yours by faith in Christ. Loved ones, the Spirit seals that to you. Without the comfort of the Spirit, we have no wisdom in our work. Remember Paul? Be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor Whatever it is, your calling is not in vain. Without the Spirit, we don't have wisdom in the callings we have. Without the Spirit, we don't have peace in the trials of life. Without the Spirit, we don't have strength to love the Lord and to love his people and to fulfill our calling. Without the Spirit, we are overburdened in trials. 
But with the Spirit, we are reminded of the unchangeable love of God the Father. Christ is desirable to us. And the Word of God comes to us by the Spirit, reminding us that the Bible encourages you and reminding us to encourage each other. Comfort one another with the comfort you are comforted with by God, Paul says. For us as a church to grow in maturity in Christ, these words must lay hold of us. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That we would be a church of mourners, of those who grieve, that we might know the joy of our sins being forgiven. People who mourn loved ones, we get out of our heads then, right? We start to think about how to serve someone else. And we say, I want to bear up and hold fast for the sake of that person. I'm grieving with them, and I'm sorrowful, and I'm rejoicing with them at the same time. That's a lifestyle of a church in spiritual humility because we're pointing one another to Jesus. I want to encourage us in these weeks, look for the marks of these beatitudes, marks of grace in each other. And in a genuine way, pray for that person, maybe even tell them or write them a note and say, I see God's grace at work in you in this way, and I thank God for that. That we would encourage each other to look to the day when all of our tears will be wiped away. God keeps your tears in his bottle right now, the psalm says. One day, one glorious day, the day of Revelation 21, they will all be wiped away. The day of Christ's return. The day when all of this comfort is realized fully in the consummation. For those who have ears to hear, may God give us grace to hear what he says. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we long for this day when we will sin no more. When we will be comforted entirely and fully and completely in Jesus. When the day of evil and sin and death will be no more. Help us to trust in Jesus now by faith that Christ himself is our only comfort in life and in death. Father, do that among us at Emmaus Road. Build us up in confidence, in hope, in mourning, and in rejoicing. In Jesus, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.